0: Welcome to Pop Parenting, Season 2, where therapist and author Avram Nadegill and myself, Ellie Bass, drink a lot of coffee and discuss family dynamics, relationships, parenting and more each week using 2000s movies to illustrate complex situations and examples. By the way, Pop Parenting is now rated in the top 20 Jewish podcasts to watch in 2021, all thanks to you. So thank you for all of your support, feedback, and movie suggestions. Please keep them coming. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. Okay, here we go. Let's do it. All right. Welcome back to Pop Parenting, everyone. Avram um we are doing one of my favorite one of my favorite movies I know I say that a lot you hear rabbis say all the time like this is my favorite holiday like I'm like with these movies that we're doing um lost in translation with Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray it actually is a film that stuck with me from the moment I saw it I think the soundtrack is just gorgeous I think the allure of it being Sophia Coppola it was like one of her first sort of forays, I think, after the Virgin suicides and and the fact that it's, you know, these particular actors, there's just so much wonderfulness in this movie. Um, i was so happy that you that you threw that up on the deck.
1: Um, yeah, no, the, I mean, it- I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because we're going to talk about this film. Uh, But I I think that it's, for me anyways, besides the film is just fantastic on a lot of different levels from uh, understanding relationships and longing in this the other piece I would put on here, when you said Sofia Coppola, Bill Murray, uh, Scarlett Johansson, would be Kevin Shields from *My Bloody Valentine*, who scored uh, um, as a guitar player and a songwriter. He is my favorite, favorite. Not no one even comes close to *My Bloody Valentine*'s uh, *Loveless* album. And uh, and uh, my understanding is Sofia Coppola asked her music director Brian Rutzweil or something. I forget his last name. He he does a lot of uh, scoring. Uh, for TV, she said to him, "I want you to make me a mixtape of shoegaze music that would set a tone for the film." Wow. Um, and he picked Kevin Shields. Uh, and so this film holds a very special place in my heart because of that. Um, and uh, I just, I, I don't want to go on and on about the music, but
0: it's phenomenal, though really just
1: beautiful soundtrack. Yeah. Okay,
0: and, be, and and perfectly chosen. Like it's thoughtful. It's it's eclectic. It's it sets the right unique um, mood, you know, because the mood of this film is so important. You know, this film I find is so much about, as much about what's not said and what's not understood as what's said and understood. Like there's these pauses, there's these missed communications, there's these, you know, quiet moments where, you know, you just you can hear what's being said is actually felt in a completely different way and so i think the music really does a good job of reflecting that also so
1: yeah the other interesting thing uh, about how powerful at least back in the day i don't know how it works now i'm, I'm too old but back in the day before TikTok and all this kind of stuff right. um, how powerful a movie could be in terms of how it influences culture um gaze. Was sort of primarily like if you were into that music, it was it was a very English sort of thing, Ride and Lush and My Bloody Valentine, and of course mm-hmm. then Jesus and the Mary Chain of Cocteau Twins. It was a very English sort of a thing. It came to the States. It was there was a couple of bands that were big in the States, but that's kind of what happened. I'm not exactly sure of the timing, but something happened after loss of translation where shoegaze took off in Asia. Mm-hmm. And it's become this like subculture thing uh mm-hmm. where um th- there's a lot of bands that are outdoing my bloody valentine's Ma- my right. bloody valentine sound is all coming out of asia and i think lost in translation had that type of an impact uh with that music there um uh interesting but uh, okay let's get into it because i ha- i Go i ahead. have uh, some some uh, I-, I think some interesting uh, notes here
0: i'm so excited to hear where you're gonna point us on this so okay i'll do Short on one foot, hopefully short. Um, Okay, so Lost in Translation, directed by Sofia Coppola, um, is the story of we're first introduced to Bob Harris, who's played by Bill Murray, who clearly is a sort of action star on his way down. Um, He's invited to Tokyo to be a part of. be a part of an ad campaign for whiskey where they sort of see him as this James Bond kind of Rat Pack kind of guy. Um, and he's really kind of experiencing this over the hillness. And And, um, but he's doing it because his agent said, this would be a good thing for you. And it's a new market and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So- And, and see- he gets paid $2 million. <laughs> okay,
0: and he gets a good, yeah, for sure. It's a good fee for him. But he's really dealing with a very young funky culture that he doesn't feel a part of and it's certainly part of the whole one of the characters in the film is not understanding the language so you know he all he just consistently feels like a fish out of water in this situation um and he himself is trying to figure himself out who am i if i'm not the you know, virile, sexy action star that I once was, what am I now? And he's very kind of lost in a certain way. Um, uh, and then he encounters Scarlett Johansson's character. She is in Tokyo at the same time, staying at the same hotel as he is. She's there with her photographer boyfriend, who's clearly like a photographer for lots of the bands and movie stars. and. And she says, I came with him because I had nothing to do. And she, we, as we subsequently find out, she's graduated from Yale in philosophy. She's clearly a smart thinker. But the whole time we see both her and Bill Murray sitting up in bed, first of all, not able to sleep because the jet lag is horrendous when you fly halfway around the world. And both of them trying to sort of, like that their sleeplessness isn't just the jet lag, but it's also this sort of sense of, who am I, I'm feeling a bit isolated and disconnected from their own selves and their own lives. And you can see them sort of trying to figure out to, what to do with their time in a country where they don't speak the language and they don't feel particularly connected in their relationships and and, and in their work. Yeah.
1: Can we just focus on that one piece? I didn't make uh, uh, make this as a note, but I just want to touch on this my my clinical specialty is not insomnia but it comes up in my practice and one thing i have observed oh personally when i when i have gone through my own sleep issues and stuff is that there does seem to be some sort of a connection with a day well lived and that might mean laying brick or it might mean something with your kids but a day well lived of adventure of bringing your best of this and just conking out at the end of the day. And those other days where you're just kind of floating by you're, you're BSing yourself and you're BSing other people. But and you can lie until the lights go off and your head hits the pillow. And now you have to reckon with you. Right. And I, I have often wondered about that connection with insomnia and the pseudo self meaning the fake self we bring to the world that we could bs ourselves and everybody else until the lights go off and then we're just left with our thinking and a lot of my clients of course i mean you've heard this ellie this isn't anything new but we'll say you know um uh generally throughout the day i'm not so anxious but once the lights go out it's like a tidal wave that hits me when my head hits the pillow yeah. Um, anyways, I just wanted to throw because I think that it's a, th- that theme of sleeplessness yeah. can get lost in the jet lag, but I agree with you. I think the sleeplessness also has to do with a sense of malaise and boredom and they're lost and, um, and I think it hits them when their head hits the pillow. So I just yeah. wanted to.
0: Yeah. I think that. it's so important. I mean, I can even say from my own experience also, like, um look sleep is in order to sleep you have to let go of control it's the it's an act of letting go allowing yourself to to sleep and shut down and making yourself vulnerable because you're closing your eyes and going unconscious so it's a very vulnerable position to be in so if you spend your day not being vulnerable and you know controlling whatever's happening to you sleeping isn't going to be an easy thing to accomplish and certainly for me in my own path when i learned you know for all of the different things that people say about meditation one of the reasons that i'm an advocate for it is because when i learned to meditate my entire experience of sleep changed Mm. from literally like day one Mm. and part of that for me was integrating and having a, a way to move from being conscious to unconscious through processing whatever was going on during the day I mean even Judaism has within its practice when you say your prayers before bed it has a whole paragraph where you basically forgive everyone you've interacted with and let them all off the hook and then you're basically saying okay now I'm going to put everything is is out of my hands there's nothing else I can do today and that kind of loss of control because it becomes something you choose rather than something you like fight against so i think you know from my own experience what you're saying is totally accurate there is a a direct correlation
1: you know just a as an aside about that i mean you know um for those who are new to this podcast that are shocked to hear the word jew or rabbi or this uh, part one of the one of the elements of this podcast is turning to the sources, um, in our tradition, in the Jewish tradition, um, and, bring it into this podcast. Um, when I first was getting involved with, with, uh, with Judy's back in the, um, in the mid to late nineties, um, I remember, uh, trying to integrate that those evening blessings that you were saying Mm -hmm. um and for years growing up with the don olam which is a well-known prayer if you go to synagogue right um but you you say it at the end also right i think i believe it's part of the uh the the final um uh, uh, uh prayers uh and there's just something about praying before you're about to hit the light off and go to bed where a lot of this um I'm not sure how to describe it. Uh, it. It's this, you know, you're in one state, you're about to go into another state, and it's a dangerous one. You don't know what's going to happen. Those, those blessings really sort of provided um, a nice go-between that I didn't have before. I didn't have the technology before. Um, and they've come in and out of my life over the years. Um, I still say the Shema, which for people who are Jewish or listen listening to this would know the Shema. Um, almost like, it's funny, at my Lowest levels of observance. I've always had the Shema. It was something that I integrated, and, and over the years, though, it's it, I've integrated a little bit more. And but now you're you're lighting a little bit of a fire. Actually, I, you're bringing back some good memories of when I used to say um, integrate more of those uh, uh, prayers. So I'll give you an update.
0: All right, to, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, to see Sweet, how much sleep hygiene is is something I'm very like passionate about. So yeah, I think it's really important. So yeah, it, it is a theme throughout this film. You see them consistently sitting up in bed all night while other people are sleeping and getting up at three in the morning and going swimming or going to the bar or watching TV. They're, you know, Much of the narrative of this film is what's happening when they're not able to sleep. And, um, and that also adds to that sort of surreal lost feeling because if you've ever been up for days, um, which most people who've been parents or you know, even counselors at camp, you know, can be a little disorienting. So the, the film also carries that mood of that sort of disorienting feeling of not quite being grounded in time, as well as grounded in space or grounded in relationship, like everything's untethered. Um, and so as they move through the film, you sort of see this friendship occur between um, Scarlett Johansson, her character is Charlotte, and Bob, um, which is Bill Murray's character. And they sort of like, you know, form this unique friendship and um, have a few adventures together in Tokyo. Um, you know, they sort of, it, it's a very beautiful friendship because you can tell it's not romantic, it has, it has flavors of the longing that you would have when you want something to be romantic, but it's generally not romantic. Um,
1: I, I got it. I'm gonna push back a bit on this. Okay, I, sure. I, I I gotta say, Ellie. I I've read that uh, Sofia Coppola says that in interviews. I think even Bill Murray says that. I had the same reaction when I watched it this time that I want when I watched it in the theater in 2003. I felt a strong. Uh, uh, uh at least a longing I, I don't yeah I didn't I feel a longing? sexual I mean That's I clearly right. well the whole let's be clear he's what how old how old do you think he's playing what what age do you think he's playing the film
0: early I mean, 50s
1: mid 50s yeah. okay no
0: maybe not that old because his kids are little and oh, I would okay. say like mid 40s to late 50s probably okay. somewhere in there
1: Yeah. She's this like bombastic, like beautiful, like you know, bright. <laughs> like, right. Who wouldn't be like like wow, you know? So when he looks at her early on in the film, and this is what this is what I, I find Sophia Coppola isn't being so honest. The film opens with her tush, you know, like she's clearly playing up the sexual uh, um, thing of Scarlett Johansson, who is is what one of the most rated, the most beautiful women actresses in the world for I don't know how many years so I find that in the elevator scene even when Bill Murray is looking at her and he just he can't stop and then she finally acknowledges him and gives him like a little hello that there's like this you wow you, not only you American but you're very attractive so I found that at least towards her now maybe for her it you could see it grows over time in the film where clearly he's giving her there's something emotionally that she's drawn to him, almost like one could even say, I don't mean to get too Freudian here, but almost like maybe a father figure or something that she's lacking. But by the end of the film, to deny that there is chemistry at some level. then they
0: certainly show that at the end of the film, just for a moment. But I think that wasn't the majority of their relationship. No. I think that the bulk of their relationship is, and I think that's why their characters are set up who already be in relationships she's there with her boyfriend he's married with kids
1: her husband actually they're married two years
0: right so you know so they're in relationships and so they themselves you know that's another ambiguity in the film what is this relationship between them you know you also don't quite know what's going on there and and yet you can feel there's a connection there. And, and part of the mystery is what is this connection? And most men and women, when they're friends, that can become confusing if you don't know what you're doing and you don't understand what's going on in the dynamics. So I think that their confusion could easily lead to perhaps misunderstanding what their connection is but their connection is there nonetheless. And I actually think the beauty of their connection is they fulfill a part for each other. You know, I I was so struck by how he's old or older and yet completely immature. He wants to wear the cool t-shirts. He wants to like, you know, like feel like, you know, he makes the sort of immature jokes. Like he's just kind of like totally immature on the outside and the inside, but like the older guy on the outside. Whereas she is the young woman, and yet is like doing like flower arrangements and like talking philosophy. And so in many ways, like in some ways she's mature and like wise beyond her years I think probably people would call her character you know and she's kind of like prim she's not the the bouncy movie star that he's you know that's there visiting in Tokyo just talking about clothes and you know and cool people she's just kind of like a little bit more critical and a little bit more down-to-earth and and so in a way they they kind of like she feels like she's older than she is and he feels like he's younger than he is And they both don't quite fit in with wherever they're at in their lives. And in a way, they sort of reflect that with each other. So I think it's really interesting watching them together, trying to figure out why they like each other, because in a way they're kind of alike. Um, and, And I think it's really beautiful. So so they basically go through these adventures and, you know, and eventually towards the end, I think the only important piece to add to the On One Foot would be As he's leaving, what they feel is the incompleteness of their time together. And in a way, kind of don't want to leave another weird feeling in their lives. And so as he's driving away, he sees her walking down the street. He's leaving for the airport and they kind of had this very unsatisfying goodbye. And he jumps out of the car and runs after her. And of course, that beautiful scene, you know, where he whispers something in her ear that none of us can hear. Right? And then they have that, that kiss and it's a very, you know, it seemed more honoring of their connection, but you pretty much know they're like never going to see each other again. And so I think there was like, you know, a real, um, completing of their experience together while they're living in lives where nothing feels complete. And I think that's why it's so satisfying for me personally, at the end, I think that was really beautiful. So I think that's sort of the on one foot and we'll kind of go from there. I, I'm very excited to hear what you have in your notes.
1: <laughs> you know, people, uh, I, Ellie, I didn't realize how funny this film was when I watched <laughs> it again. I, I was just dying. And I don't think I was laughing as much the first time, but there, you know, certain movies, they they age better with when you watch certain scenes over and over, Yeah. That those scenes with the whiskey and the ad, Guy, it just gets funnier. <laughs> it just gets—I find and it funny and funnier. He's
0: saying like these half an hour paragraphs, and then the
1: the translator's like,
0: "Oh, he just wants you to turn to the left."
1: <laughs> and, and Bill Murray's deadpan. Yeah. the way he does that deadpan thing—I think, I think he said more than that. I know, it's <laughs> it's so just good. great. And the other thing in the film that I didn't catch. But I read about it, Ellie, and so I watched for it this time. And now when I watch it, I, I just—I almost was in tears when he's in the hospital mm-hmm. with that older man. And you
0: see the, the like, women in the back. Do you was... know
1: that's? Do you know that's his daughters? What sitting in the back laughing? The, Sophia Coppola was had the camera rolling, and it was in a real hospital. That wasn't part of the scene and that guy that was sitting there bill murray would do shtick like he would just talk to people and, and she, right. she would capture certain things
0: right
1: the guy who was sitting there in the back is his daughters they were in a hospital oh, that's and his
0: daughters that's like his that. daughters
1: and if you watch them they're Be- dying laughing as yeah he's i know to- it's
0: amazing
1: what he says in japanese to bill murray is um what are you doing in japan and when he was doing the circle yeah, he was trying to ex- he was trying to explain time like a clock. Oh. So when Bull- Bill Murray was a- the daughters were dying in the background <laughs> listening know, one to of the my bling-
0: favorite parts.
1: It wasn't in the script. It wasn't oh, part of the movie. Sophia Coppola great. captured what, what do you call that? Yeah, something in a bottle. Um, what's that called? You mean, capture magic. Is it magic in uh, a bottle? Yeah,
0: I don't know. I can't remember the expression, but it, it totally was. It was just so it's fantastic. Like, it's like when we looked last last time at um, that moment where Kate Hudson says to. Um, to the, the character and Almost Famous, she goes, you are home. And that was totally improvised in one of the most beautiful parts of the movie. So yeah, I, I actually always remember that scene because I adore it. Like their interaction is so funny and the women in the background who are cracking up. I was like, this scene is genius. How did she do this? But now this makes more sense that it was just totally improvised because it was it was so beautiful
1: just fantastic such a, such a great scene um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do something here ellie it's gonna be a little bit um i just uh, you know i had my notes for our podcast today i was really excited but then something happened this morning i i kind of like sandwiched it in so i'm gonna see, let's see where we go with this okay? <laughs> okay so okay so um one of the things that's happening right now it, again we're called pop parenting and and, and uh, so thinking about uh, uh parenting angles for this podcast you know is this question of how are the kids doing Right. So with COVID, how are the kids doing? Everybody wants to know how are the kids doing? Right. Okay. Um, and right. in this film, I think it's there, there is sort of a um, just a touch of that with the idea of how are Bill's kids or um, uh, what's his name? Not Bill, Bob. Bob. How are Bob's kids doing? And, and it's a theme that sort of plays itself out in the film, which is the wife is saying, you know what? They're doing just fine without you. Yeah, you know, they're doing just fine without you and his own sense of guilt or whatever about being away from the family where he feels he has to get back home. He never says why one could assume, though, that this that that feeling of of um, cognitive dissonance about wanting your own space and getting away from your family and your spouse. But at the same time, thinking, "Yeesh, are things that bad that they don't even need me right in their life. Okay. In that sense um, of
0: like, where's my place? Like, clearly they don't need me there and I don't really fit here. So what, where am I?
1: Now, the question, of course, as a clinician, the question, of course, is that true? Right. Is that true? Are kids all right when parents are absent? So I, 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 th- I thought if we could just spend a little bit of, just a little bit of time on this. Okay. okay? So I'm going to share two quick things with you, Ellie, and then uh, I want to hear your thoughts and let's just see where this goes, okay? Okay. So a few days ago, um, my father, my, uh, uh, that's OK. I can say this. My father-in-law sends me an article it from The Atlantic, OK, which is I don't know how you would just The Atlantic. I don't read it that much, but generally it's kind of a left leaning political, not far left, but it's sort of like more liberal left leaning. Um, and in the pandemic, I think that a lot of the articles where one could say, you know, it's funny eh, in, in COVID times. Lockdown seems to have taken on the trappings, politically anyways, of more of the left. Opening up seems to have been taking the trappings of of more of, you could say, more conservative or whatever. But I mean, I think that's true. Whether whether it's true in terms of how it acted itself out, I think at least online, it played itself out that way. Okay, so my father-in-law sends me an article about someone in our family who's a psychologist, who comes from a positive psychology Mm -hmm. background, so martin seligman that sort of stuff and the article was everyone thought the the, the research suggests that everyone thought the kids weren't doing so well they're doing just fine meaning and and that's a very positive psychology angle which is we're much more resilient than we think and we we shouldn't um catastrophize things because we're actually much stronger than we think and so the i didn't read the article (laughs) to be honest with you it goes on and on So a parent, let's say a parent reads this. Okay. So what do you do with an article like this when you're a parent? Okay. Because, you know, as parents, we have to make decisions. Do we send our kids back to school in the fall? Do we not? Data, this. So the the problem with articles like this is, I just read the, the first little bit, is that first of all, if you're coming from a certain clinical perspective, you will cherry pick data to support your thing. This is all right. I saw for 30 years of working in mental health organizations well,
0: not just in a clinical situation. Most parents cherry pick information to support the position.
1: So. We all do it. And and the problem with that is that it's hard to make decisions when all of your data is biased towards one thing. It's actually it can be quite dangerous, as a matter of fact. Right. And then we have another problem, which is social psychology research over the past 10, 15 years has been um, slammed by uh, clinicians themselves saying that there's something rotten at the core with a lot of social psychology research. So Ellie, you know, at JFI, whenever you bring in a speaker and they say, evidence, the evidence base suggests that CBT or the evidence base, you know, your average parent is not going to dig into the details of the research. And by the way, most clinicians don't even understand how to understand the difference between robust research and not.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: However, that article goes on to say the kids were doing just fine. Ergo, lockdowns, you know, weren't fine. as bad. That's yeah, they're fine. fine. They're fine. Right. And exact. And I think that's sort of where the tone of the go, which is like if it happens again in the fall, the kids will be fine. Right. That was four days ago. This morning, <laughs> <laughs> this morning, I just happened to be on Reddit, subreddit Toronto, and someone posted an article from Sick Kids right here in Toronto, Sick Kids, and Sick Kids just released data and they're indicating that the majority of children and teenagers i guess that came through their doors i don't know mm-hmm. how they know this saw that mental uh, mental health decline during the pandem- uh, pandemic second wave was exponential mm-hmm. off the charts okay mm-hmm. now i can confirm this i, I have spoken with a clinician who, um, I, I'll just leave it with the, it, I have spoken with the clinician who works in an emergency department somewhere else in Ontario, not Toronto, who has said that they have seen an increase in anxiety, just anxiety, panic yeah. attacks, anxiety attacks, not depression, by 300%, compared to 2019, mm-hmm. pre-COVID times, okay? Um, and I And I think that, you know, how do we talk about this issue? of how are the kids doing meaning how does a parent make a decision when you're getting such contradictory you know sick kids are saying the kids right. aren't fine yep the atlantic is saying the kids are just <laughs> fine <laughs> okay right so i'm going to throw this at you ellie you're, you're a parent you're a coach you, you're involved in the community you run the jfi where do you go with all of this contradictory information, how do you make sense of it? I'm just, if you have any thoughts, I'm just kind of curious to hear.
0: Um, So look, I think it's something we all encounter and it's very complex, especially when you're part of a community and then people within that community have different things that they gravitate to in terms of what they listen to. Um, I honestly, like some of the best advice I ever got or some of the best pieces that I figured out related to parenting were, Ultimately, you have to take all of those different opinions and then figure out what's your way. What is my family? What is good for our kids? You know, how are my kids doing? Because just because all kids are fine or all kids are messed up, the question is, where are my kids? Because I'm not going to be on one side of the extreme or the other. and I think for me, I always try to sort of whittle it down to say, OK, well, what are some of the indicators of fine? And what are some of the indicators of not fine? And then, OK, where are my kids on that sort of scale? And and then how do you address it? So I try to not look, Judaism does not advocate extremes. We're supposed to look at this opinion and that opinion and then figure out like what we do with it. So um, I think that's a big part of it for me. So that's sort of how I deal with that stuff personally. And then my, you know, just like we would do with all kinds of different pieces of practice and parenting, then you just respect everybody else's decisions and how they interpret the information. Um, I don't need to judge how anybody else puts their kids. If they say, you know, this says to me, my kids are fine, not a problem or my kids are totally messed up. Yes. I totally agree with that. That's none of my business. My job is to do the best I can by my kids. Um, But I think I try not, like you said, not to get so hooked into the zealotry, and just sort of pare it down to, okay, so what's happening in our house? and, And how can I understand that information in a way that it informs, but doesn't freak me out?
1: okay i got nothing else to add wonderful excellent i love it love it ellie great stuff um no i, I agree with. but the it's not
0: stuff. easy it's not easy when you're a parent and there's a million different pieces of information like partly what i was going to say was i had to learn that through trial and error because there's 30 parenting books all on the same topic sleep training alone you can find 50 different opinions about that and then and then 80 different ways to do it um so i think like as a parent navigating the amount of information that is out there when we're growing up in a time where you don't just do what your parents did and what their parents did and what their parents did you are often left reeling with how to figure out what the right thing to do
1: is yeah i I will say actually i do have one last thought then we're going to move on to i'm going to move on to another topic here i think um I think that the way this conversation is phrased often uh, about how are the kids doing is uh, around suicide. So mm. did suicide go up and not? If it didn't, everyone's fine. If it did, and I, and it's a, um, I don't know why that is. I, I'm not sure why that's always a, a measure of- Right, like, yeah, but something? it often is. If, if you listen to these conversations about COVID, it often is, our suicide rate's up, our suicide rate's down. I think that is a very poor measure right. of human functioning um, in terms of uh, how people are responding uh, to um, all of this kind of stuff. I, that's my only comment. I'm, so I'm you know, so
0: happy you said that because, yeah, kids can be really suffering, but suicide will never enter their imagination.
1: Exactly, yeah. And yeah. kids
0: can be actually not bad but suicidal ideation for some reason is part of their system whatever those reasons might be so Mm -hmm. I just feel like that's a random marker like drug use could be part of it you know insomnia could be part of it like there's so many other ways to try to figure that out like suicide seems like worst you know I guess maybe that's worst case scenario and that's why they use it but it just seems like such a Abstract marker of anything.
1: Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I just uh, I wanted to uh, throw that out there because I mean, I mean, in the Atlanta card, they specifically said, well, people were saying that the kids are gonna like get off of themselves, but actually, suicide. But I don't think that, that is not what I would look to huh. to make a judgment call at a policy level in terms right. of opening up schools or not opening up schools if kids are killing themselves or not. I just don't think that's a that's a um, a barometer of of anything that I would make policy decisions for large groups of of people okay
0: right so how does this connect with like what you were saying like about you know the effect that it has when a parent is away like how can we take a look at that in terms of how kids are doing
1: look i mean um i think what you said is very important okay from a family systems perspective it's not the thing that is a problem in a family it's the response to a thing so Got it. uh, meaning uh,
0: it's uh, not the fact that a person that a parent is away exactly right? yeah okay. yeah yeah
1: and by the way i have many cases where in my practice where this is true um i have seen this like, so it's a clinical observation but th- this is true and i have many cases where both parents were at home right uh where kids it, kids it, wasn't so right. <laughs> it, it wasn't great Right. it wasn't great okay so um i i think that uh That's just, it's one of the many wise gems that Dr. Bowen has given to the world. This idea that, you know, too often we focus on the thing as the thing, and it's the response to the thing. And we know, and again, Ellie, we've talked about this before, we know um, that Holocaust literature um, and some of the, uh, you know, and now I will talk about resilience, you know, some of the um, uh, information that we have gathered around uh survival and what the jewish community built post holocaust um would suggest for some many i don't know you know the thing didn't destroy this people the thing some people responded to it with such vigor and creativity and and just you know without getting to the weeds of this you only have to go to Jerusalem and see what the Bell's Hasidic community, how they rebuilt their synagogue, which my understanding is it's four or five times bigger than their shul they had in Poland with their birth rate probably is much higher than they had um, in Mm -hmm. Poland. Um, So many of our institutions that we have in North America. um, And yes, we can, I have my own criticisms, about some of them, but the fact is, Building up from the ashes and all this sort of a thing right. um, would suggest that it's it's a human being's response to a trauma. It's a human being's response to something, not the thing itself. And too often, and I don't want to go down that path of what's happening right now. You know, some of the that's the a very cultural controversial
0: things. Controversial thing to say right now. That I know. That's why trauma, I don't want to. It's I, how you deal with the trauma. I, I don't want to go down I, that I right now. You.
1: I, I, all I will say, Ellie, is that I feel lucky and blessed to grow up in the Jewish community and the Jewish community's response to our historical trauma. And I just feel blessed. I think that if I grew up with my grandfather saying to me, and we got to keep going after Poland and Germany, and <laughs> if all I grew up with was right. was that message of, um, you got to keep reminding yourself of the grievance at, I don't know where I'd be in my life right now. I really I have no clue what I would be doing with my life. I right. grew up with a grandfather who's who left Europe, lost some of his family there, and his message to me was forward thinking, go to school, work your butt off, you know, if right. you pay taxes, defined, that's a good thing.
0: That a thing that's exactly. Ever to
1: you. Right. Exactly. So I will leave it at that. We we might want to come back to that at a different time. Okay. Okay. Okay.
0: okay. Let, <clears throat> Speaking of moving forward
1: yeah let's talk about charlotte um okay charlotte very interesting character so i'm going to throw a couple of ideas out here ellie and let's talk okay Ready. so she has a phone conversation with a friend in the film hmm. okay she's upset she's calling her friend because um she doesn't know what's going on with her marriage she doesn't know what's going on with herself she's reading a book about finding her soul she's lost and if you remember in the film she's crying and her, and her friend is kind of like uh somewhere else, (laughs) like her friend is distracted. And Charlotte's very uh, you know, upset, I think, with her friend because her friend isn't there with her, um, understanding the depth of her pain. And I have a hunch, it's just a hunch, Ellie, that people who are watching this film think, what a selfish friend, like what a, like your friend is calling you and she's crying and you're somewhere else. So that's my first, okay, so we're just, let's hold that there for one second. Okay. Another scene she has interactions with her husband, a few of them, where she is sort of like, you know, lying on the bed, kind of like saying, Hey, let's do kind of like, let's do stuff together. But he's like, gotta work, gotta work. He's gotta work. He's gotta work. And he's out there. He's doing all this kind of stuff. And I have a hunch the audience, and I think Sophia Copeland did this on purpose. The audience is watching this going, what a narcissistic workaholic, you know, Bah, (laughs) fill in the blanks, like just really nasty guy. And Charlotte is this innocent, loving, empathic victim of these mean, mean people. A system's perspective on this would not see things like this. A system's perspective would be, is how is she part of the problem and this is why i love systems theory because if you're cause and effect what you see here is an innocent person charlotte with these mean mean people and boy is it lucky she met bill murray because bob because he's a good he's the good guy because charlotte needs a good guy so here's the thing okay she feels misunderstood and she does not feel seen by her friends and her husband okay But let's just very quickly touch on who is charlotte and where does she come from we don't have much information but here's what we know because she tells this to bob in the film Mm -hmm. this is her background my parents were always traveling they weren't around so much my dad was the ambassador of france in the 80s so we went to school in paris for a few years but we mostly lived in dc and they were never around Mm -hmm. okay so we just talked about you know i was saying it's not the thing but how you respond to the thing But I think we can extrapolate some things. So for example, if you're a child and your parents are never around, and I have clients, by the way, if if people think that this is just Sofia Coppola, Sofia Coppola probably lived this life. Her father was Francis Coppola. So Sofia probably lived with nannies or whatever by herself. I mean, she probably lived a life like this all over the world. Dad was off, I don't know what mom was doing, but I have clients who lived like this. They really did, whether their parents were, working for the government or high profile people in companies, they, they grew up on their own. And I think it does have an impact, but the question is, what type of programming, what type of impact does this have on a kid? So I, I mean, I have some ideas, I'm just kind of curious to do, do you, have, when, when you heard that, when Charlotte said that, this was my background. What comes to mind for you anyways, Ellie, when you think about, like, no parents around, you're just, you're left to your own, you know, you gotta figure stuff out on your own. What? How does that shape someone, do you think?
0: So, I would say, so two things come to mind. One is really interesting just about the film. You know, I think it's interesting that what Bob is struggling with is not being there for his kids. And, you know, we're getting this mirror of her being the kid whose dad is never around. So, I think that that's very each of them is seeing something from a
1: different perspective. Let's just remind the audience. Murray Bowen said when we marry, we marry people at similar levels of differentiation or emotional maturity, but with opposite defense mechanisms that we seem to be drawn like a magnet to some people. And even though your friends and family are going that person's not good for you, there is something stronger there right. is something at a subconscious level, Bowen right. said, that draws certain people together. And I think you're touching on something here, that right. there, there would be something about Bob that even though Charlotte might be thinking, and she's not, but she could be thinking, oh my God, this guy's just like my dad who was never around for his kids. But she is drawn to him in some right. way that feels well, not familiar only that, to me.
0: She's married a guy who's always running out the door. So, you know, I think that that's also a huge piece of that puzzle is look what she chose. So, yeah, I think that's a, you know, you learn love from your parents. This is what love looks like. And so that's the only thing I can sort of think of when you, if you lay out that scenario, if love looks like me always being left alone, <laughs> then it, chances are when you look for love, that's the the puzzle piece that you're going to try to
1: yeah somehow yeah and this this is what you know um uh, david freeman my late supervisor and co-author used to say all the time about love is that we love no more no less than how we were loved in our families there's some wiggle room otherwise i couldn't be a therapist i mean if, if everything was i've had to complete you right. can't do anything <laughs> but how no. There's growth, but it's not as much as some people think. Now, it doesn't take a lot to pass on to your kids some growth. It also doesn't take a lot to pass on some regression to your kids, but this idea that I'm going to read a couple of self-help books and go to therapy and do everything different is a myth, okay? The fact is that if you grow up in a home that that where touch, physical touch, is done in a very warm, you know, playful, loving way, touch is going to feel very comfortable. If you grow up in a home that's very cold, where if people like recoil at hugs and touch. It's going to be very, very hard to acclimatize yourself to someone else when you're dating or something, if they're very touchy and it feels to you just like nails on a on, on a blackboard. And so we seem to right. find so people-
0: Like some people would just say, that's the work to do. Like if you'd like for that to be different, there's work you can do to change that. Like I, I, I just want to push back on that a little bit just in terms of, how much growth is possible i think as much growth as possible as you're willing to do the work on as deep as you're willing to go as much as you're willing to take on change like i think all possibilities are left open for us but you have to recognize how hard that work will be um,
1: and, and i think that's my point That i think people don't recognize how hard right. it is even if you're open to this sort of work and so you know i think you've 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 sort of packaged it very well in terms of how I see a young Charlotte sort of needing to take care of her own needs. Her parents weren't there, so she would have had to be pretty resourceful, take care of her own needs, swallow her wants and her needs because her parents weren't around, and just became a resourceful kid. Clearly did well for herself, went to Yale um, yeah, in, in the movie, in the script, right, and does very well for herself. But you know what, Ellie, what I tell my clients a lot of the time, what was the price you paid for X? I often will ask my clients like they'll say, and I did this and I did that and that, that, that and that, and that's why this. And I was like, great. And what was the price you paid? Because the idea that no one, that that there are some choices in life that have consequences and some choices in life that don't have consequences is nourishkeit, as we say right. in Yiddish, it's that's BS. So there is right? consequences for everything. So Charlotte is very resourcefulness, but here's the price that she paid in my humble opinion. The price that Charlotte has paid, and I see this with quite a few women actually in my office, they were programmed to go along to get along, swallow your tongue, don't rock the boat, don't say things that are going to upset mom or dad, just go along, be nice, be good. And Charlotte is, she's good, she's nice, just rock the boat. But the price she pays is that when she's on the phone with her friend, and when she's with her husband, she is not clear about what she wants and what she needs from these relationships she she is not clear and so when i see that phone conversation with her friend she does not say to her friend i need i need help right now i'm going through a tough time you have 10 15 minutes she automatically goes to she shares a couple of information she's crying her friends off and then she hangs up the phone depressed oh oh you know she doesn't understand me but people who are who who have more one could say backbone or more they'll say right up front i need 15 minutes of your time I'm going through something, do you have it? No, can you? Can we talk tomorrow? Fine, let's talk tomorrow. And it's the same thing with her husband. She kind of hems and haws that wouldn't it be nice to spend the day together? No, no, gotta work. But she never actually says, hey, I came here with you, okay? I would like to spend three hours tomorrow you know, and, I, and you see that play itself out in the film. And I, I just, the reason why I'm, I'm touching on this is why I think it's so important is that either Sofia Coppola knew this or it was an accident by, by giving that background information. We don't see Charlotte as a victim. We see Charlotte as being programmed mm-hmm. to learn how to satisfy her own needs but to the exclusion of being able to ask for things from other people with clarity, with conviction, okay? And if she doesn't figure this out, she will spend the rest of her life kind of moping around, reading books about the soul, and never finding her feet, because she's got all the raw material, beautiful, smart, funny, she's got all the raw material,
0: Not only that the ability to have experiences and be moved by things you know emotionally she's actually quite available you know when you see her walking through the japanese gardens and she's moved by these different things that she sees she's clearly deep clearly present in many ways she just doesn't know how to do that in relationship um it's quite something to watch she's isolated in these deep experiences and doesn't know how to assert like, hey, wow, like, check this out and, and share that with other people and feel connected.
1: Now, the other thing that you said, which I think is um, important, is that she married a guy, right, who is, you know, off doing all these things. And, and what we know about marriage um, at least my understanding of marriage, is that the marriage didn't start that way. In fact, she would have seen his ambition as being very sexy. Like that would have been very, because it would have been familiar to her. It would have been something that she saw growing up in her family, okay? And so what we know what marriage is, the very thing, I mean, it's it's, it's sort of the counterintuitive, um, you know, what's that Depeche Mode line? Uh, God has a sick sense of humor. What From um, a uh, blasphemous rumor or something. Right. About, oh anyways it's that line of that god has a sixth sense of humor you know the idea is that the things that draw us to the people in the beginning is the jerry Maguire thing 20 years later are like you know become a very big problem yeah look and
0: not only that he's a photographer so she was probably in the front of his lens for the first part of their whole relationship feeling completely paid attention to not only paid attention to but like obsessively photographed so i'm sure that was a whole experience for her to feel like the Absolute center of attention with that type of focus from someone who takes pictures.
1: Yeah. Um, so okay, I, I can go on about that, but i there's other notes I have about this fascinating dynamic. With the time remaining, um, I just want to jump to a, a bit of script here about marriage. Okay. And so this is the scene, Ellie. If you remember the scene um, where they're lying in bed, I think they're just they're lying in bed. And as an audience member, you're not sure if they're going to get it on. Like you're just, because they're lying in bed. They, I think they had a couple of drinks. It's near the end of the film and they're lying in her bedroom. And by the way, I remember I, I heard this once. I forget who said it. I wish I remember who said this. Like When you're traveling and you have a hotel room and you're married, never, ever, ever invite a colleague into your hotel room unless you are prepared to. So, mm-hmm. th- and I think that was why, and by the way, this wasn't a rabbi, it wasn't a priest, it was just some a traveler who said, mm-hmm. you're more vulnerable, you're jet lagged, you're away from your family. You have to be very careful about, um, let's call it situational, uh, 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 situational awareness, monogamous situational awareness. Right. Okay however, Charlotte and Bob are in the room. Okay. And the script goes like this. Charlotte says to him, uh, and marriage, does that get easier? And Bob says, it's hard. We started going to a marriage counselor. Charlotte says, did it help? Did you learn anything? Bob, we established that we have no communication. Oh, Bob, we used to have fun. She She used to like to go to places with me for movies and we'd, we'd laugh at it all, the weirdos, but now she's tired of it all. She never even wants to leave the kids. She doesn't need me and I don't, and she doesn't need me and, and they don't need me. And I feel like I'm in the way. It gets complicated when you have kids. That changes everything. And Charlotte says, oh, that's too scary. Okay. Do you have any thoughts about that little encounter about her thoughts about marriage, uh, his thoughts about marriage and basically kind of warning her almost about life and...
0: That still their relationship is unclear. So he's not really advising her as a wise elder. He's not really comforting her as a friend. He's just sort of absorbed in his own experience and she's affected by that.
1: That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't catch. I didn't catch that, Ellie, actually, when I was making my notes. That's actually a very good point. She's two years into a marriage, and she's struggling. Yeah. This is not helpful for her to hear, <laughs> right? Right. This is not helpful because all he's saying is, oh, it's going to get worse. <laughs> it's right. basically going to get worse.
0: Right. And he's not aware of his possible position with her to be able to help her. He's just sort of in his own stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, uh, 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 you My thought about this here um, is the following. I'll just share a couple of uh, quick thoughts about this here. The fact that um, Bob says, we used to have fun. We used to like going to places and she would laugh at it all. I think touches on something you said, Ellie, which is that, you know, maybe back in the day, he was this famous actor and she was like, you know, all gooey eyed, you know, mm-hmm. about her husband, who's this, and his, his own narcissism would have been fueled up by how she looked at him. And, and she would have been all fueled up by the power that he gave her and all that kind of stuff. And that's the Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Mm-hmm. But as I've often said in talks, and what I say in my first book, is that it's like cottage cheese that has an expiry date. And if couples don't learn how to grow beyond that, what they do is they get stuck in this uh rat on a wheel thing spinning around always wanting to go back to the Garden of Eden they want to go back to the feelings how they first spent what they don't understand is that y- y- you're not supposed to de-evolve back to the immaturity you're supposed to evolve past that and right. Bob doesn't know that and so what he's passing on to Charlotte is this idea that it's really good in the beginning and then it just gets worse and right. if Bob would have read my first book he he would have known it wasn't written in 2003 uh, david starches was so he but he would have he would have understood that his wife and him they're in a period of gridlock right now they're in a period of gridlock and the old ways aren't working anymore and they they haven't lived through this enough to find out what the new ways are the new ways again this is similar themes around empty nest syndrome where a couple you have a couple They spent 25 years avoiding each other by focusing on the kids. And then 25 years later, they're looking at each other going, oh, God, I got to deal with you. Like I haven't thought about us in 25 years. And it's true. They haven't. It's always been about the kids, the kids, the house, the car. But now it's kind of like they're they're at university. It's like, I got to deal with you. And who the hell am I? I mean, we're not the same people we were 25 years ago. Okay. And that's the whole idea of who, who have I married? Or, you know, who is this? You're not the person I married. That's right, 25 years has passed. So unfortunately, in this scene anyways, um, and again, you know, Elliot, one day, maybe when we have a workshop, we can go on and on about how marriage is portrayed in movies. Mm-hmm. The, the the tragedy about this, of course, is that there is, there is zero helpful advice for Charlotte in this Charlotte has nothing to give Bob here. And even though it's a beautiful film and they embrace and they kiss at the end of this, I, as a therapist, I, they neither of them are leaving with a growth experience in terms of how to handle their current relationships where there are real consequences if things go south, mm-hmm. okay? Bob just had an affair. He slept with that singer, the lounge right. singer. He's going back to young kids and, and a wife. He's he's kind of in love with Charlotte. He's He had an affair. He's going back, Charlotte's going back to her photographer husband with information essentially that says it was good a year or two ago and it's just gonna get worse for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So what I say to these people is good luck Um, and- uh, Hang in there. uh, Yeah, 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 (laughs) so uh, beautiful film but um, I think that people who left that film and I think unfortunately too many did, uh, audience members who left that film thinking that, um, you know, life sucks and then you get married and then that sucks. And that maybe if you're lucky, you have an emotional affair in a hotel room somewhere. and That's the best it's right. going to get. Right. I would say, eh, I'm not so sure that's true. And I know that Sofia Coppola is married to the lead singer from the band Phoenix. Great mm-hmm. band. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have two kids and it sounds like they're doing well. And I hope that Sofia Coppola has learned a few things uh, over <laughs> the years. So, there we go. There's my thoughts
0: Amazing. I, I, I Look, I think as a piece of art, That represents a time in someone's life. I think it was a perfect snapshot of that experience that they were in. Whether either of them goes to do the work that's necessary in order to grow out of that experience, it'll be interesting. That would be interesting to see. I would suspect that there was something about there. I think what I like to think is there was something about the authenticity of their relationship that reawakens their desire for authenticity. And that that can be the beginning of change. You know, like I think there's some aspect of, because really what happened in that hotel room, even though it was kind of a miserable conversation, The reason they were able to sleep, because you notice they fall asleep right after that. The reason they were able to sleep was that they were finally somewhat real with somebody and with themselves. And maybe sometimes that moment of being real could potentially, that's the idea of rock bottom with an addict, or like when you just realize things as they are, you could potentially use that to catapult into how you would like things to be. So I think there's possibility, but the question is, they do the
1: work well here's here's how i see this playing itself out because i've seen this in different uh couples i've worked with here's what i see we'll we'll just take bob forget about charlotte bob's gonna go home and he's gonna be distracted and at some point his wife is gonna say to him where are you like you're not at the supper table you know you're here but you're not here and and she's gonna push him and they're gonna fight and at some point bob's gonna say i fell in love or i met someone and the question at that point is going to be is, what do these two people do with the crucible they're in where Bob admits an affair? Because he's had, he had two affairs. He had an emotional affair with Charlotte and there was some touching, and he and he slept with the, the singer. And what every couple has to grapple with in their gridlock when there's an affair is, does the affair do what you're saying, Ellie? Does the affair lead to a reckoning with, what did I do to create this? That would mean Bob's right. wife too, okay? Right or and no based on these characters i would say it's going to be the latter unfortunately so here's my debbie downer moment my hunch (laughs) is what the wife would do is in this scene she would say you were never there you were always narcissistic you ruined the kids and get out and or he might say this is why i had an affair because you're and when you get into that position of it's your fault it's your fault especially during an affair um affairs are hard to they're hard to survive um right. and uh, so I am sorry Meaning to say it can be done it's just very difficult I can tell you in my practice right. and this is going to sound uh, quite uh, conceited but I'm just telling you my stats my stats actually are pretty good generally not but generally I have to say that when infidelity in my practice and I thank family systems theory for helping me it has helped me navigate affairs more successfully than not mm-hmm. but any marital therapist will tell you when a couple calls you and they're coming in with an affair it's hard work I mean there's just no way to get around it it's hard work there's a betrayal and it's hard but anyways um a great film um great soundtrack loved it yeah um,
0: so many interesting things to pull out of that film and it's you know again as a snapshot as an art as a piece of art it's it's really quite lovely it's pretty special and it's in its feel and vibe and choices and you know like those great little moments that that you love out of it so yeah. Okay. A lot of fun. Um, let's see. Oh, is it my choice for the next It is your turn. Pilot? Yep. Uh-huh. Okay. Your turn. <laughs> see what we end up with. The no, I'm just kidding. We won't do that one. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. If you haven't had a chance, please remember to like and subscribe or follow. Um, and we always want to hear feedback and movie suggestions from all of you. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye.